Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy to have you with us. And if you're joining us online or over in the chapel, I want to say a special welcome to you also. Do you have a favorite Christmas cookie? Anyone? All right, here's what I want you to do. Turn to the person next to you and tell them what your favorite Christmas cookie is in the chapel too. Ready, get set, go. All right, wow. A lot of excitement about that. Well, since you asked, since you asked, let me tell you my... Um, my favorite Christmas cookie. It's a cookie that my grandmother made and my mom made, and they're called Farina bonbons. They're made with like cream of wheat and they have uh, cream cheese frosting on them and sprinkles, and they're just absolutely delicious. And the day after Thanksgiving, we were decorating our house, putting up our tree, and gonna watch some Christmas movies. And so uh, my sweet daughter offered to make the first batch of Farina bonbons this year. And she made them with a lot of love, <laughs> but she forgot to put powdered sugar into the dough. And so um, the cookies, when they came out of the oven, they were starting to crumble and they didn't quite pack that same punch that they normally do. They tasted a little bit more like a cracker than they did like a cookie. And I started to think about that because uh, I think in some ways that would epitomize uh, many of the Christian lives that you and I live. Uh, they, pack the, they, they don't pack the punch that they're intended to pack and oftentimes they crumble instead of standing strong. And I want to try to help us identify why that is this morning and then help chart a different course forward. And in order to do that, I want to invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to jump right into the text today. Let me give you a bit of context as you're turning there in your Bible. Last week, we read and picked up in a conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples in the upper room. Remember, they celebrated the Passover meal together. He washed his disciples' feet. He told uh, the disciples that someone was going to betray him. Judas left. He told Peter that Peter was going to deny him. And then Jesus went into a, a series of teachings in that same upper room. He, he looked at his disciples and saw that they were troubled because he just told them that he was going to leave. And so he began this section by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you or a home for you. And where I go, I will eventually bring you to be with me. I will bring you home. That was his promise. And then instead of saying to the disciples, so just hold on until I die, until you die, right? Because sometimes that's the way we can read that passage. I will bring you home. So just hold on until you die. And after you die, it's going to be great. Jesus said, no, 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 I have a plan for you before you die, in addition to having a plan for you after you die. Somebody say, praise be to God. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
So whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, everybody say anything, anything. in my name, I will do it. It's that anything and whatever that just sort of gets me caught up. Anybody else? It seems so definitive. And it seems as though Jesus imagines his disciples calling out to him to do the miraculous in their midst. Now, I imagine if you're the disciples at this point and you hear this, um, you'll do greater things than I, you might start to look around the table and you might start to go, well, like we've got, we've got Judas as a part of our clan. We've got betraying or, or denying Peter as a part of our clan. Like David had his mighty men, but Jesus, have you seen us? And we're, we're not exactly a, a stellar group at this point of disciples. So I imagine those disciples sitting around that table were at least internally starting to ask the question, how in the world, how in the world Will we do greater things, even more things than you have done, Jesus? How is that going to happen? And that's where we pick up. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. Are you there? Wonderful. Jesus said this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Wow, that, that's, that's quite the promise, is it not? So the short answer to how will the disciples do greater things than Jesus is he's sending his spirit. That, that's, that's how. Now, in these short few verses, there's a number of things that Jesus teaches us about the nature and character of the spirit who lives within each one of us. Let me show you four things that he teaches in these verses. Number one, Jesus tells us that the spirit is asked for by the son and given by the father. Now, if we have anything we ask in his name, is it safe to assume that Jesus has anything he asks in his name? Come on. Yes. yes. So if Jesus asked the Father to send the Spirit, can we have confidence that he did in fact send the Spirit? Okay, wonderful. Great. Um, second, the Spirit is described as another helper. Um, someone who's in the same vein as Jesus himself. That word helper in the Greek is the word um, paraclete, and it could be translated advocate. It is in some translations. It could be translated advisor. It could even be translated as friend, as friend. But notice that it's, it's personal. Someone who's going to come and who's going to support you, come alongside of you, encourage you in a very personal way. Third, Jesus told us that the Spirit would be with us forever. Now, certain groups today will teach that when your, your spiritual vision starts to grow dim, that you need, quote, more of the Spirit. And I want to sort of correct that a bit to say you either have the Spirit or you don't. The Spirit is a person and people do not come in bits and pieces. 
He's either present in your life or he's not present in your life. Now, we all have different relationships with the Spirit and the Spirit acts differently in each of our lives. And we'll talk about why that is and how to have a more intimate relationship with the Spirit as we go on in our time together today. But I just want you to know at the beginning that you either have the Spirit if you, or you don't. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you have the Spirit. He dwells within us. And I love the way that Jesus said that in two different ways. He said, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, any guesses what word in the Greek this word dwells is? Abide. Yes, thank you. Who said that? Extra, extra credit. Extra credit, Jody. It's your birthday. Extra credit for you today. Abide. Yeah. So, It's fascinating because in the previous few verses, we saw Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare an abode for you. Same root Greek word. And now he says, I am going to abide or dwell within you. What a a beautiful picture that as we wait for him to bring us to our eternal home, he makes his home in us. What a beautiful picture. Um, You should know that these words that are translated you in your Bible are actually plural. So if we were in Texas, it would read, I will dwell with y'all or all y'all, right? So there's something unique that Jesus does in our midst by the power of his spirit when we gather together. When it's not just you in your home reading your Bible, which the Spirit dwells in you there, but there's a unique thing that He does in our midst as we gather together. The the Spirit of God is first and foremost a communal promise. As Dale Bruner says, He will make His home in your fellowship. Now, this is amazingly good news, is it not? I mean, this is an amazing promise by a gracious and good God. So how are the disciples going to do greater things than Jesus? They are going to be recipients of the Spirit. And when the Spirit descends, the disciples, you and I and them, will be filled with power. Now, it strikes me that even after spending three years with Jesus, hearing him teach... Uh, walking with him along those dusty roads in Judea, having closed-door conversations with him where they go, hey, can you help us understand that? Or we really don't get that. Or what was it like in heaven before you came here? All of those conversations they had with Jesus, and yet those conversations were not enough. They weren't enough. Apart from the Spirit, the disciples did not have what they needed in order to live as Jesus' disciples. Catch that. He would not have sent the Spirit if they already had all they needed. So, So let me propose to you that if the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years, who heard him talk, who were able to hug him and put their arms around him and look in his eyes and know his love in deep and very meaningful ways, personal ways, if it wasn't enough for them to see Jesus, walk with Jesus, hear Jesus, if that wasn't enough alone, then maybe it's not enough for you either. Maybe we need the Spirit also. I would suggest to you, if they needed him, we need him also. And that learning how 
to host the Spirit is essential to becoming a disciple of Jesus. The Bible makes more than 100 references to the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says more about the Spirit than he does about church, marriage, finances, and the future. And I sense that Jesus teaches so much about the Holy Spirit because he doesn't want his disciples to be powerless, worn-out, anxiety-filled religious people. He wants them to be people who have an intimate and very real personal relationship with him. He doesn't want them to have a form of godliness that denies its power. He wants us to walk in the power that he provides. And he provides it in a very real way. But I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like the Holy Spirit can can be a a missing ingredient in the life of the church. This is the way A.W. Tozer put it. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Now, if if he's even partially right, how in the world does that jive with what Jesus just said? I'm leaving, but I will send a paraclete. I will send a helper. How in the world does it jive? If if Jesus is true to his promise, which I believe he is, yes? Why in the world, if we have the spirit of God living in us, and if he dwells among us, then why in the world do we not sense his power in the way that most of us intuitively know that he's designed us to experience it? Let me ask it like this. If the spirit is promised by Jesus and he doesn't come in bits and pieces then why do some Christians lack the Spirit's power in their life? If he's in us, shouldn't we be experiencing more of him? Now, here's what I want you to know. You can write this down or however you want to note it, but um, the Spirit dwells in every Christian, but not every Christian walks in the Spirit's power. The Spirit dwells in every person who believes in Jesus, but not every person who believes in Jesus walks in the same measure of the Spirit's power. Now, why in the world is that? Why is it, why is it that, that some people seem to have a, a different kind of relationship with the Spirit than others? And, and if it were possible to have a a more vibrant relationship with the Spirit of God, would you want to know? Nobody would. We could close in prayer. Yeah, I I would. I would. See, Jesus promises to send his Spirit, but it's our responsibility to learn how to host his presence. Let me say that again. Jesus promised to send his Spirit, but it's our responsibility to learn how to host his presence presence and that's exactly what Jesus begins to teach his disciples verse 18 I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more but you will see me because I live you also will live I think this is a reference Jesus is making it's a subtle reference to his resurrection he's the resurrection and the life because he lives you also will live praise be to God 
in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. What a great promise. What a great promise. We're going to talk about that more when we get to John chapter 17. But there's this interconnected um, invitation for people who believe in Jesus into the, into the life of the triune God. He and us and we and him and it's a beautiful thing. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. Everybody says and, say and keeps them. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. Now, just a quick time out there. That can, that can make it seem like the love of the father is a bit conditional. Like if, if you love him, then, then he will love you. Which is interesting because the scriptures say that we love because he first loved us. And the scriptures also say that for God so loved the world. That doesn't seem conditional, does it? No, I think what Jesus is saying here is that as we follow his commandments and as we obey and walk with him, we become even more aware of the love that he has for us. There's an intimacy that starts to develop where we just know in the core of our being, he's good, he's with me, and he loves me. And then Jesus makes this promise, and it's pertinent to what we're talking about. He says, I will love him and manifest myself to him. So Jesus promises to dwell in every believer, but here he says, whoever keeps my commandments, whoever obeys me, that's the person that I will manifest myself to. So you might read it like this. As you obey Jesus, he makes himself more real to you. As you obey Jesus, the spirit of God impresses the love of God on your heart even more. As you obey Jesus, the spirit of God gives you um, insight and wisdom and knowledge that you couldn't even imagine having previously to walking with him and him dwelling in you. He promises to manifest himself to you as you are obedient to him. And you may go, well, Paulson, that sounds a bit conditional. And I would say, it is. It, it is. The promise Jesus is making is, when you obey, he will manifest himself to you. We might say it like this. The condition for receiving the spirit is belief, but the condition for the spirit manifesting himself is obedience. Is obedience. Now, the question my guess is you're wrestling with is, um, obedient to what? Like, we got, a lot, we got a lot in this book. Which parts do we need to be obedient to for the Spirit to, to manifest himself in our life? To, to have more of an awareness of the Spirit's presence. Like, what, 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 of, what of this do we need to be obedient to? Which commands do we need to keep? I think the commandments that Jesus is talking about are the commandments that Jesus just talked about in the context of this letter. And the commandment he just talked about is found in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you. Now, now this, is, this is like three weeks separated for us. It's moments separated for them, right? It just keep it reading. 
a new commandment I give you, that you would, say it with me, church, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How do you become hospitable space for the Spirit of God? How, how do you host the Spirit of God in your life in a way where he manifests himself to you and shows himself to you, where you're able to walk in his power, where you're able to know his voice, where you're able to sense his love? How, do you, how does your heart become hospitable space for his presence? We become hospitable space for the Spirit by living out Jesus-like love. Um, have you ever been over to somebody's house, maybe during the holidays, um, where it just seems like they've turned hosting into a sport? You, you know what I mean? Like, like they spent hours on Pinterest getting ready for your arrival. And you walk in and you're like, there's not, not, no stone has been left unturned. Everything about the meal is prepared. Um, it's different than going over to somebody's house and they're like, hey, grab some paper plates out of the cupboard, Right? Everything has been thought through. They, they're, they're good hosts and a good host allows you to just relax and enjoy the time together. Do you know, as we read through those scriptures, the, the spirit of God is, is described often as a dove. Doves are, are, are a bit skittish at times, aren't they? And I wonder if maybe we just haven't spent enough time Reminding ourselves that we are hosts for the Spirit and that there are ways that we can live and there are things that we can do that make our hearts hospitable space for Him. And then there are things that we can do that make Him shrink back, where, where we don't get to hear His voice quite as much, where we don't get to sense His love in the same ways. See, when you choose anger and bitterness, the Spirit starts to shrink back. He doesn't leave, He'll be with you forever. The question is not, is he with you? The question is, can you hear him? When you choose anger and bitterness, when you choose selfishness over love, when you choose hate and long for revenge, the spirit shrinks back and we start to create, our hearts start to become inhospitable space for the spirit of God. And it becomes harder and harder to hear his voice. I love the picture that C.S. Lewis painted in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. Can anybody say amen to that? in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up some towers, making a courtyard. You thought you were being made into a decent cottage, but he is building a palace that he intends to come and live in himself. 
I, I love this picture that Lewis paints because um, I think viewing our life as a, as a house or as a room and, and, and making Christ at home in that place is a beautiful picture. But I love that Lewis points out that, that it's the Spirit's work to do this. It's not just try really hard and, and pull up your bootstraps. No, no, no. The Spirit of God wants to teach you how to love God, how to love people. He'll do the heavy lifting. You just have to say, I'm in. I want to cooperate. I want to repent when you show me that I'm wrong. I want to walk in the way of love. I want to live in your way with your heart. If you'll empower me to do that, I want to do this with you, Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. And in the rest of this passage, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give the disciples a vision for why creating hospitable space in their heart for the Spirit is the best thing that they can do with their life. So, so here's, here's the why. Here's the why behind all of it. Jump back to verse 18 with me because Jesus made a comment here that I want to circle in on. He said, I will not leave you as what? Orphans. But I will come to you. What a great promise. What a great promise. See, one of the roles of the Spirit in your life is to affirm our adoption as God's children. From the very beginning of John's gospel, we've been told that Jesus, through Jesus, through belief in Jesus, we have been given the right to become children of God. And here, here we see how that promise starts to take root in our lives. That promise of adoption, of being sons and daughters of the Most High God becomes more and more real to us as we abide in the Spirit and as the Spirit makes His home in us. I think of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of what? Of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, so the Spirit of God working in our life creates in us a longing for God and it creates and stirs in us a knowledge that God is indeed our good Father. That's really good news. The Spirit himself, notice how Paul doesn't say the Spirit itself, but the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Oh, friends, friends, please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. One of the ways that God intends for you to walk in freedom and not in slavery is by placing his spirit inside of you that reminds you on a daily basis that you are a child of the most high God. He knows your name. He knows your story. He knows your failures. And he loves you more than anyone you've ever met. And Paul would remind us of what Jesus said. The spirit reminds us we are adopted as his kids. Second thing, jump down to verse 22 with me. The conversation between Jesus and his disciples continues. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot. By the way, how would you like to be the other Judas? <laughs> Every time they mention you, you're like, not that Judas, right? I'm the other Judas. 
only my parents could have named me Bob. Then, <laughs> Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That's a really interesting question. How, like, how is this going to work? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There it is. If you love me, you will obey me. That's verse 15. He just said it again. And my father will love him and we will come and make our home. And he guesses which word? Abide, abode. We will make our abode with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Now, Jesus' answer to the question that's asked of him, like, like Lord, Lord, what about the world? Like, what about everybody else? The, the people that aren't seated around this table and the people who don't believe in you, like, are you going to show yourself in the same way to them? Because it certainly seems like the Spirit only comes upon those who believe and then is, there's a cultivated awareness in those who obey. So what about people who have never heard of you? What then? I think that's the question that's being asked. And Jesus' answer is a bit elusive, but I think this is what he's saying. I think Jesus is saying, I'm not going to manifest myself directly to the world in the same way I do to you, obedient disciples. But as you obey my command to love, I will go with you and I will be in you. And I will reveal myself to the world through you, through you. Now, this is a, a reiteration of what Jesus said in, in chapter 13, verse 35, when he said, by this, all people will know. By, by, by this, by what? By, by loving one another, by living in agape, Jesus-like love, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one Another, And now we see that the Spirit is the one empowering that love. And the Spirit is the one who communicates the fact that this is, that he is the Messiah and he is the Christ. As we love, other people know what God is like. And what Jesus is telling the disciples here is that the Spirit will empower our witness. We love and he inhabits and then it's as though Christ is making his appeal through us. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. And there's a lot of um, talk in our world about the, the church, quote unquote, losing ground, right? Uh, the Atlantic ran an article a few months ago that said, 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the last 25 years. Let that sink in for a moment. 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. That's something like 12% of the population. And it represents the largest concentra concentrated change in church attendance in American history. Now, just to be clear, not all of these people are walking away from Jesus. And there's a number of categories that sociologists and people who study these things are sort of thinking within. There's, there's a growing population of, of nuns in our culture, not N-U-N-S, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Um, people who would say, I have no religious affiliation. I, 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 none of it is where I would land. 
Um, the others are, are duns, like people that have just said, I'm just sort of done with the church. And then there's people like me and maybe like you who are, are people committed to the bride of Christ and who've said, I believe that, that the local church is the hope of the world, that, that, that they're the vehicle that Jesus has chosen to get the good news of the gospel out. And so then you start to go into, well, how are we going to change this trend? Like, like how, how, how are we going to see more and more people hearing about Jesus responding to the message of the gospel? And, and, and then you go like, well, okay, what's it going to take? Like maybe on Christmas Eve, may, maybe we need, we need to, to rig up like um, a zip line from the top of the balcony down to the stage. And maybe on Christmas Eve, like I could zip line in and there could be pyrotechnics. Like Daniel, I don't know if we could pull that off, but can we get like fire on the stage and... Or, or, or maybe, maybe we could just give out iPads. Like everybody new gets an iPad. You get an iPad and you get an iPad and you get an iPad. Or, or maybe we could just have like the best programs in the world. Like maybe that's how we'll switch. Listen, you guys. I believe that this is a moment for the church to get back to the heart of the matter. And it's not, it's not through better programs and it's not through a zip line and it's not through pyrotechnics and it's not through free iPads. And it's, it's not because we do everything so perfectly and polished the way that Jesus said he would reach the world with his gospel is when his followers genuinely love each other and they do so in practical and meaningful ways. And as they love each other and live their lives in the real world, his spirit will draw people to himself. We love, he draws. Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's just try to love each other really well. Like, like think about some ways that you could do that even during this Christmas season. There's ways that you could love. And my confidence is that Jesus will draw people as you love. See, Jesus manifests himself to the world through disciples committed to love. It's how he did it then and it's how he does it now. He continued teaching and he said this. These are the things that I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, there it is again, the, the paraclete the friend, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will, what? Teach you all things and bring to your, what? Remembrance, all that I have said to you. So here's one of the major roles of the Holy Spirit in your life is that he would illuminate our minds, illuminate our minds. And I think that there are a number of ways this works. And plays out. Um, first and foremost, I wonder if as John was writing the scriptures, carried along by the Holy Spirit, even as he's writing this passage, I wonder if he's thinking to himself, Jesus, you are being faithful to your promise even right now while I'm recording this. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. The recording of scripture is a fulfillment of this promise carried along by the Holy Spirit. As you and I study scripture, as we 
make our home in Scripture, coming back to it over and over again, letting it read us, not just reading it. The Spirit of God will use Scripture in your life in order to illuminate, give wisdom, lead you, guide you. I think Jesus teaches us through the power of His Spirit in a very similar way to the way He taught the disciples as He walked with them. He didn't just give didactic information. He asked questions like, do you want to get well? What do you want me to do for you? How's that working out for you? And the Spirit of God does the exact same thing in our life. Who's, a, who's the best teacher you ever had? Anything about that? Who, grow, maybe growing up in, in, in um, elementary or middle or high school or, or in college, who's the best teacher you ever had? My wife is a teacher, and she's, she's an amazing teacher, and she spends a lot of time um, thinking about lessons and planning of, of how to help her students learn. The best teachers we have, my guess is that the best teachers you have had, they don't just tell you information, they give you a passion for learning. The best teachers you've had caused you to love the subject matter that they were teaching in a deeper and more meaningful way. The best teacher you had probably helped connect what you were learning to your real everyday life. The best teacher you had, somewhere deep down, you knew that they cared about you as much as they cared about the class that you were in. The Spirit of God is the best teacher that you could ever imagine. Because it's not just about you learning. It's giving you a passion for the subject matter that he's teaching. What's the subject matter that the Spirit of God teaches? Jesus. He will bring to remembrance everything that Jesus has taught. Jesus is the subject matter. And, and his goal is to cause us to love Jesus. His goal is to connect the teachings of Jesus with our real everyday life. And his goal is to pour out the love of God into our hearts so that we know that our teacher is not just trying to teach us about a subject, but trying to cause, cause love to overflow in every single one of our lives. Do you know the spirit of God as a teacher? Are you learning from him? Maybe even right now, as you're reading scripture, right now, just say, God, would you open my eyes? Spirit of God, would you illuminate the words of Jesus? Teach me. I want to grow. Finally, listen to what Jesus said. He said, peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This is a bookend to the very first verse in this chapter, but it's the first mention of peace in the entire gospel. And it goes hand in hand with Jesus telling his disciples to not be troubled. The first time he told his disciples to not be troubled, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will bring you there. Now he tells his disciples to not be troubled and he promises that he gives the spirit in order to make that a reality, not just because we're going home, but because we have power and love and insight in our lives right now today. The spirit of God calms our hearts. And this promise of peace is a distinct promise of Christmas. 
That word peace in the Greek is the word irene, and it quite literally, etymologically, could mean the weaving back together of frayed parts. I love that definition. I love that definition. Because if we read it in the Christmas story like that, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What we see is that Jesus is leveraging the glory of God to weave back together the frayed parts in your life and mine. And the way that he does that on a personal daily basis is through the Spirit's work in our life. Not as the world gives. So it's not through a, a perfectly decorated home and it's, it's not through a perfectly toned body and it's not through a bank account that's just up and to the right or success or power. That, that's the way the world gives peace. That's not the way the Spirit gives peace. The Spirit gives peace in a way that transcends all of our understanding because it's personal and it's grounded in love and perfect love drives out fear. And when we are connected to God, we have this confidence that he's with us even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death and we have a confidence that one day he will make all things new so peace peace he gives and he offers and I wonder how you might receive that peace afresh today what what a helper Affirming our adoption, empowering our witness, illuminating our mind, calming our heart. Friends, prepare him room. Would you commit afresh to learning how to host his presence in your life? It's essential. It is not sort of on the peripheral. It is at the core of becoming one of his disciples. There's nothing better that you could do than to become hospitable space for the presence of God to dwell. Don't forget the sugar. Don't forget the sugar. Now, let me give you three quick things, way to take it home. If Jesus promised his presence through the power of his spirit, have confidence, anticipate his presence. Anticipate it. Second, I want to invite you to respond to his voice. The question is not, do you have the spirit? The question is, does the spirit have you? And as you respond to his promptings more and more, you'll start to hear his voice more and more. And then finally, do you cherish his company? Throughout this passage, Jesus equates the spirit's presence with his presence in our life. That's amazing. God dwells within you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, one of the most provocative pictures in the Christmas story, at least for me, is, um, is picture, picturing Mary and her, her womb beginning to grow as Jesus is knit together in her womb. The scriptures say, an angel answered her, this Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And friends, Mary is absolutely unique. She stands alone in history as the only 
mother of Jesus. She carried the divine Messiah in her womb. But while she stands absolutely unique, she's also an archetype. Because if you stop reading this passage, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and just stop there. It's true for every single follower of Jesus. So sure, Mary carries the, the divine Messiah, the incarnate Son of God in her, in her womb, but you host the presence of God through his spirit in your heart. And this Christmas, I want to remind you that Jesus became flesh to dwell among us, but he also sent his spirit to dwell within us. And my question for you is, will you create space for him to be born afresh in you? He's the best gift you'll receive all Christmas. He's the paraclete. He's the helper. He's the advocate. He's the friend. He is God with you. Will you partner with him to allow your heart to become hospitable space for him to dwell? Let's pray. So Lord, here we are, anticipating your presence with us, saying back to you as you, as you command us, we'll, be our best, we'll do our best to be obedient to you. And as we do that, we'll, we'll be on the lookout for the way that you manifest yourself to us, the way that you show us yourself in unique and fresh ways. And Lord, most of all, I pray that you would help us to become people who cherish your presence with us. Not just because of the gifts that you bring and the gifts that you deliver, but because of who you are. Because we love you. And because we are absolutely overwhelmed with gratitude that you would choose to make your home in us. So give us new spiritual eyes to see, a heart willing to respond. And then power as we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.